Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. In Luke 17, Jesus tells this parable about a servant who does his duty, there's a word, without expecting anything in return. And the punchline of this parable climaxes with very cold comfort. Jesus says, so you also. When you have done everything you are told to do, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. So the subject of the sermon is how to serve God. And how here means two things. First, how do we serve God like practically? What is the nature of Christian service to God? And then second, how? How do we find motivation or power to serve God? Like why do we want to in the first place? But before we get, get much further, I just want to offer two bits of preamble. First, I was really struggling this week with how to wrestle an encouraging sermon from this text, and I was pouring over it, and I was like, oh dear, I don't know. And finally, I turned to the answer key. Did you know that there's an answer key for the Bible? Tim Keller. <laughs> Several insights uh, that follow are his. Um, just want to say that at the outset. Second, just want to acknowledge that this parable is a bit of a cold shower. Now, some of you who are into Wim Hof, you're into like getting cold for no reason. Um, I'm not into that. Cold showers are very uncomfortable. This sermon is uncomfortably rousing. just want to say that at the outset as well. If you were among the listeners to this parable back, back in the day, and Jesus is talking, if I were there, I would have requested a timeout, like Zach Morris. Does anyone get that reference? Timeout. Pause the scene. Jesus, can you go back to the parable about the searching, loving Father? This parable is not very comforting at all. Jesus was, however, a prophet. He, you know, prophets sometimes use their words to rouse us, to sort of put a a uh, grain of sand in our shoe, make us uncomfortable. And that's what he's doing. Feels a bit like a cold shower. But after rousing you with this cold shower, I will not leave you there. I will try to comfort you with some warming words to put a towel around us before we go. So let's begin, though, with the cold water in the face. This parable is saying quite plainly that to be a Christian is to be a servant of God, and to be a servant of God is, first of all, to know that God owes you nothing. When the servant finishes his long day in the fields, the master does not say, can I get you some sparkling water in a cliff bar? The master says to the servant, prepare my supper. Now, I don't want to warm the water too much because we ought to feel the weight of the parable, but two caveats right away I want to offer. When you're reading a parable, there are two interpretive things to keep in mind. First of all, parables are not allegories in which every single thing stands for something. So we don't want to over-interpret a parable. Um, more commonly, parables have a specific focus. This parable is aimed at us and how we are to serve. It is not aimed at revealing the complete character of God. For example, elsewhere, Jesus says, well, Jesus is the heart of God on display, right? And he says things like, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And things like, I no longer call you servants, but friends. So the parable can't be just saying, this is what God is like. He's like a master. And this is entirely what you are like. You are like There's truth in it, but it isn't the sum total of our understanding of who God is and who we are. If this were a complete picture of the Christian life, in other words, of Christian life and discipleship, it would be pretty unattractive, a pretty un uncomfortable, unattractive portrait. But it's not complete. The point of the parable is this. Being a Christian is more than being a servant, but it is not less. 
It's more than being a servant, but it is not less. The second caveat to keep in mind is the nature of slavery in this historical cultural setting. So we hear the word slavery, and for us, wow, that's a big word. The Bible is a human and a divine book, divinely inspired, written by people who are embedded in a distinct historical context. So in that context, in ancient Rome, around one in five people were some form of slave. A lot of slaves. In fact, slaves weren't allowed to wear a distinct garb because they would know how many of them there were and they would rebel. They were everywhere. So imperial slaves had huge responsibilities. They actually had pride of place. They also were slaves who worked in the coal mines, who had short life expectancies from brutal labor. There's all sorts of slaves. This parable is not endorsing slavery especially as moderns think about it, as good. Rather, it is drawing on a widespread cultural norm at the time to teach us something about our relationship with God, to teach us a biblical truth. Namely, God does not owe you anything. You are in his debt. He is not in your debt. So these interpretive asides could be summarized like this. Joel Green, great Lucan scholar, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus is not so much inviting an allegorical reading of master-servant roles as he is drawing on the well-known reality of village life to teach us something about faithfulness. So don't read too much into it, but know this. This is about what it means to serve God, okay? The first and simplest thing that it means to serve God is that this. Faithfulness means God settling in your heart, in your heart of hearts, that God does not owe you anything. I like the NET translation of verse 10. After we have done all that is commanded, we are to say we are slaves undeserving of special praise. We have only done what we were supposed to do. We are only done what we owe God to do. So that's what Jesus' parable invites us to settle. God does not owe us anything. To be a Christian is to serve God faithfully and then abandon the outcome. More suffering? Well, that's fine. More, more reward? Great. Awesome but I will keep doing what I already owe God, which is everything. Okay, so just a moment ago, Jesus tells the disciples they must be habitually, lavishly forgiving when wronged. How many of you have been wronged this week, this month, this year? You are to be lavishly forgiving in the face of someone repenting. So the disciples say, okay, great. Well, in order to do that, we're going to need more faith. That's going to be hard. Increase our faith, they say. And then Jesus says, if only you have faith of the mustard seed which I don't think is an indictment. I think is an encouragement, saying you already have enough, actually. If you only have this little tiny seed of faith, that is enough to do amazing things, to uproot a tree or to lavishly forgive so much more. But then he says, after you lavishly forgive, even seven times every day, after you obey, don't get a big head about it. You've only done what's expected of you. Don't puff out your chest and swell with pride like the Pharisees who think that their religious performance have earned them elite status. No, go to the back and beat your chest like the tax collector. Recognize you're still a sinner. You're still an unworthy servant. You haven't earned or merited anything by your obedience. That's the cold shower. When you obey Jesus, you're merely doing what servants of Jesus are expected to do. Your duty. I asked Jenny this week. (laughs) Sorry, Jenny. Uh, what, What the word duty makes her feel? She said, annoyed. <laughs> I think many of us can relate. It's a, you know, it's not a pleasant word. We'll get to that in a minute. Nevertheless, Christian life is much more than duty, but it is not less. And in my own heart this week, I sort of felt an invitation from the Lord to push on this a little bit. 
Jesus was being prophetic, so here we go. You have a duty to obey Jesus. You have a duty to forgive from the heart when you've been wronged. Husbands and wives, you have a duty to love your spouse like Jesus does. To treat them with respect and patience and kindness and gentleness. You have a duty to say no to pornography and to give yourself sexually either to a spouse or to celibacy. You have a duty to say yes to the poor and to those who are hurting and suffering and needy around you. You have a duty to say yes to justice. You have a duty to apologize and to repent when you've knowingly done harm. You have a duty to be temperate in your relationship with beer or wine or bourbon or cake, whatever your vice is. You have a duty to resist temptation, the temptation we all feel to just kind of get comfortable with our habitual sins. Cozy up next to them to let like anger go unaddressed in our life. That's just the way I am. To let your tongue become unbridled with gossip or with malice. It's, it's not gossip. It's just uh, you know sharing, sharing a little bit about you know I'm just venting, you know whatever it is. Let your mind. You have a duty to not let your mind fill with the poison of greed and to just let envy dwell in your heart, envy for your neighbor's house or your neighbor's family or your neighbor's Instagrammable vacations or whatever it is you find yourself getting envious about. You have a duty to treat others as better than yourself, says Jesus. Your master Jesus has asked you to obey, obey him, and these are things he's called you to. And when you have done it, the truth is you have only done what is expected of you. You know, you will not in all likelihood be canonized a saint or idolized as a celebrity or, or have your, your name put up in lights or put on a plaque in the break room or whatever it is. In other words, obeying Jesus does not entitle you to a good life. It does not grant you the spiritual equivalent of the, um, you know, like the airplane reward stuff, like Platinum Elite Admiral's Sky Status Club. <laughs> the point is, the serving God does not put God in your debt. He doesn't owe you anything. To obey Jesus is not an end to other means. It is the end. And we've got to settle this in our hearts. The call to obey him is to obey him and then abandon the outcome. So after a hard day's work, he doesn't owe you the life's equivalent of, of sparkling water in a cliff bar. He doesn't owe you anything more than he's already given you. I mean, look, look around at one another. Look at what have you received that you have not been given already? God is currently upholding you by the power of his word. And if he were to stop, so would you. So take another breath. Everything you have is a gift that you did not earn. Before the second point, let me point out two bits of good news about this. You know, we're, we've kind of gotten to the bottom of this bucket of ice. Here's some good news. First and foremost, the gospel. If even after perfect obedience, you've done your duty, right, and you've obeyed perfectly, even after that, you remain an unworthy servant. That's the bad news, but in that bad news, there's a the good news. Then it can never be your perfect obedience and duty that makes you worthy. Your duty is not about earning God's favor. That's not where his favor comes from. Our worth and his favor must come from something other than our duty, and we'll get to that in a moment. Second, this really gets at entitlement. This gets at entitlement. God wants to root out entitlement, I believe, from our hearts. 
If you let God root out entitlement, you set yourself up to stop living in constant disappointment and disillusionment that life isn't easy. It involves pain and disappointment and the like. How so? Imagine that life is like a mountain. It's majestic in some ways, but it's brutal and it's difficult in other ways. Now, you might be a jogger who feels entitled to a long, straight road. Some of you in our midst are trail runners. I don't get that, but <clears throat> when I run, I want to just go straight. Well, when I play soccer, I'd prefer it to be on a flat, flat level. <clears throat> when you come to a mountain and you're upset with it, you can try to kick it, but you're just going to do what I did. You're going to break your toe. <clears throat> you're going to break your foot against the mountain. It's not going to budge. I think the comforts of modern life in Denver, Colorado, and mostly middle class, fairly comfortable existence, I think they do tempt us to this sense of entitlement, to, to a kind of a pain-free, relationally easy, sexually fulfilled, maritally blissful, vacation-laden, you know, job-satisfied, desires-met kind of life. All the more so if, like the older brother in Luke 15, we think our obedience means we've deserved it. I earned it, Right? We think God owes us. And then when the mountain of life's difficulties drop in our path, we kick out. Okay, kick away, but the mountains, they're not going to move. Perhaps the reason modern life is marked by such disillusionment and, and unhappiness and depression, and more than ever, we think we're entitled, I think, to a smooth road. And when we think life or God or the universe or whatever it is is basically wrapped around making us happy, we get terribly grumpy about even little inconveniences. I mean, the waitress gets our order wrong. Um, the Wi-Fi on the plane doesn't work. To say nothing of huge difficulties like untimely death or disease or loneliness and the like. I almost lost my mind this week because Iris is regressing in sleep again. I mean, I found myself throwing a fit about it, honestly, in the middle of the night. I thought, she's well-fed, she's well-loved, she's well-taken care of, why will she not sleep? God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? You know, I was throwing a fit. The only way I can navigate even the relatively small difficulties of sleep deprivation, though they're real, without losing my mind, is to remember that this life is not designed to reward me. It is not bent around making me happy and making everything easy. That's the next life. A Christian servant's call in this life is not to be happy, but to be good. It's not to be happy, but to be holy. God has given us this life not to make us happy, but to make us holy through service to him, to make us like him. So we've got to set our expectations right. We're not entitled right now to an easy road. Is it possible that so many today are unhappy? It's because we're living in this sort of expectant, smooth, safe, comfortable, pain-free life. And when that inevitably does not come, there's no recourse to a higher purpose at all. One metaphysician writing a new science magazine put it this way. She said, what is the meaning of life? The harsh answer is, it has none. Your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, a few people will remember you for a while, but they'll die too. Humans will go extinct, earth and the sun will be destroyed, eventually the universe itself will end. Now if that's the case, then yeah, hedonism is probably the way to go. Maximize pleasure, minimize pain, live for today, and then die. I mean, even that path has shown to be full of depression and pain. But a Christian service must settle, a servant must settle this in her heart. The purpose of life is not to make you happy, but to make you good. 
And as we make peace with this purpose, joy begins to undergird even pain. And sure, sometimes happiness follows, and that's wonderful, but often it doesn't, and that's hard. God doesn't owe you anything. I encourage you to think about this or journal about this this week. You know, am I kicking the mountains, so to speak? Am I angry at God for what he has or hasn't given? And think about this question. What does God owe me? What does God owe me? What do do I actually think he owes me? Get get honest with yourself. Don't give a Sunday school answer. Get honest in your heart. What do you think God owes, owes you? Now, if you apprehend, I mean really apprehend, that God owes you nothing that he hasn't already given, then it sets you up to love him for who he is, not for what he's done. And it sets you up to put your joy and satisfaction in a place that the circumstances that rise and fall can't touch. Now, finally, a tiny bit more cold water in the face, and then we're going to get to the warm towel, okay? How do we serve God? First, by without expecting anything in return. That's the first point. The second way we serve God is without qualification. Verse 10, once you have done all that you were commanded, once you have done everything that's been asked of you, it says, a Christian servant is one who obeys everything. That means obeying completely even when you don't understand. You'll notice verse 11 begins a new scene. There's a parable. The, servant, the parable of the servant ends, and then we read in verse 11, Jesus entered a village. He was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, and they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. The scene is new, the theme is not. I think Luke puts this story here precisely because it embodies the nature of obedience and service to God. What do I mean? Well, think about the scene. The lepers stand at a distance. Why? They have to, by law. They have to be quarantined from the rest of society. So they have to shout at Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? Go and show yourselves to the priests. Well, where are the priests? They're in the heart of the city, aren't they? So they're supposed to just go out of quarantine suddenly. They're not healed yet. Jesus is saying, go. They look down at their diseased and gnarled skin and body, and then they look back at Jesus, and they look down, and, and what do they do? They go. Obey because I said so, something I heard sometimes as a fairly rebellious child with a high need to understand. <clears throat> it's an annoying thing to hear when you're a kid, but it's often a justified thing to say when you're a parent, sometimes not. Come on, some parents, sometimes you're just being mean. But often it's justified. It's always justified from God. God is reasonable. We have, we have good evidence and reasons to believe his ways are good, but sometimes they are so hard and so confusing and they don't make any sense. And at that point, you have to decide in your heart if you're going to obey him without qualification, if you're going to obey him because he said so, or if you're going to put your understanding above his word. If you only obey God when you understand, you're not obeying. You're agreeing. If you only obey when you agree, Jesus is not your master. He's your advisor. It's hard to hear for us, and it's hard to apply because this, of course, cuts directly against the grain of the spirit of the age, which, like it or not, does shape us too. That's why we're so annoyed by this call to duty. How dare someone else tell me what to do, you know? This week I came across an interview with an actress, and she was asked this question, what is one good choice that everyone can make to improve the world around them? And she answered, look for your own truth. Live your own truth. And then engage in the daily practice of asking, what do I need today? 
She's, that's a spiritual discipline she's recommending. Engage in a daily practice of asking, what do I need today? Because the only person who will know what works for you is you. Now, I don't scoff, actually, at such advice, because I do see that underneath it, there's this kernel of, I mean, it's confused advice, obviously, but there's this kernel of a desire to encourage, and a desire to empower. So I see that there's this good desire there, but oh, it's so misguided, because the best lie is close to the truth. I mean, it only takes a few edits to bring this kind of spirit of the age advice into the spirit of Christ advice. Look for the truth, not your truth. Live the truth, not your truth. And then engage in the daily spiritual practice of asking not what do I want, but what does my master require of me? The lepers again serve to illustrate. They knew they needed healing, and so they stood at a distance and said, have mercy upon us. And they knew that healing was not going to come from looking within, but by looking upon Jesus and shouting at him from a distance. And then we read in verse 14, when he saw them, when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And then look what happens. In verse 14, here are the key words. And as they went, and as they went, not before, not after, but as they went, they were cleansed. So, enough of the cold water. It's finally time for the warm towel. And here it is. Though they didn't fully understand, they obeyed without qualification. And then one leper gives us this perfect image of basically what Christian service is. And here it is, verse 15. Then one of them, who saw that as he went, he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. To be at Jesus' feet is what? It's to be at his service. It's to make him master. Why was the leper at Jesus' service? Why had he made Jesus his master? Because he had been cleansed and healed and restored and set free, not just from disease, but from the social and spiritual isolation of leprosy. That's why leprosy so often in the New Testament is associated with our salvation, because it's a holistic healing of the, not just the skin, but also of the soul. And so here we see a picture of our call to service, our call to, to duty. We are not like prisoners. When we read this word, we're servants. We're not to imagine ourselves with a chain around the ankle, bound to Jesus with a harsh master pushing us down to his feet. No, 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 no. We imagine ourselves like lepers who are bowed in gratitude, who have experienced his words as our healing and his restoration. In other words, God does not owe you anything that he has not already given. Everything you need most, he has already given you. Life and breath and forgiveness and cleansing, and community, and grace, and love. And yes, life for now is still full of mountains that occasionally drop in our path, but he also gives us a promise. Consider the words of the prophet Isaiah chapter 40. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see, see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And that day you will know that because I said so from the mouth of the Lord is not just enough, it is glorious life for us. And whatever diseases of body or soul continue to cling in the meantime and be hard and painful, in the end, the leprosy of the world will be made clean. Our bodies, our souls fully refreshed. And we will be bowed at our maker's feet. Every knee shall bow, right? So we have a duty, yes, but our duty is not fueled by merit, by trying to earn it, because even after we've earned, you know, earned it, even after we've performed amazingly, 
We're still unworthy servants. Nor is our duty fueled by slavish fear of God. Our duty is kindled by love. By love for the God who loved us, who became a leper and died as one of us so that he could heal us. By Jesus, who actually is, in the end, the perfect servant, the one who humbles himself fully at his master's feet, that we might have freedom to try and to fail, to walk and to fall, and to learn and to grow. He is the perfect servant. And in him, so are we. So Keller finally explores the dynamic of duty and fear. Ultimately, our hearts must be changed. Okay, this must happen in here. How can the inner workings of the heart be changed from a dynamic of fear and anger to that of love and joy and gratitude? The answer is to be struck by a vision of the beauty and goodness of our master Jesus. He then points out two hymn lyrics that basically summarize everything I've tried to say, but in po poetic form, from John Newton and William Cowper. John Newton writes, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before. Right? Duty, it's annoying. Why? Because we don't want to do it. Pleasure, now that's good. That's what we want to do. Pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined apart no more. Our pleasure and our duty become one in Christ. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, not by us, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Now, it's only duty in the bad sense if you don't want to do it. If it's choice, it's loyalty. It's love. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice, meaning being a Christian servant is not less than service to God, but it is more. It's becoming not just his servant, but his child. Brothers and sisters, you have a duty to obey Jesus. May you see him fulfill the law on your behalf. May you hear his pardoning voice. May your obedience be changed from duty to choice. May serving Jesus become the great pleasure of your life. Obey him and abandon the outcome. Father, we know we, know we need help. We know that you are the perfect servant and we are not. We know we need the gift of faith to even desire to obey you. So we pray you would give it to each of us. Help us to know what, what is the healing we need. We thank you for your grace, for making us not just servants but children. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.